0: Water on the Moon, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. You heard Bill Nye mention it last week, after decades or possibly centuries of speculation, we now know there is water on the Moon. Jessica Sunshine is part of both missions that made this discovery. We'll get the details from her in a couple of minutes. Bill Nye looks back to 1976 when we came ever so close to uncovering water ice on the planet Mars. Emily Lakdawalla winced along with the rest of us when the Messenger spacecraft shut off its instruments just as it was about to fly by Mercury last week Messenger is okay now, but someone asked Emily if this could happen when New Horizons passes Pluto. She's got the answer in Q&A. And then we'll find out how some of your fellow listeners would destroy the Earth. Let me tell you, you folks are scary. Bruce Betts will join me on the
1: eve of destruction for this week's What's Up segment. Here's Bill. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the planetary guy here, vice president of Planetary Society. And earlier this week, the Planetary Society sponsored a book signing with a brief talk by none other than Buzz Aldrin, the second person to walk on the Earth's moon. And Buzz is uh, 79. He'll be 80 in a few months. And he went on and on about the importance of the United States' leadership in space travel. And what he was really talking about was the United States' leadership in human space travel, human space exploration. And this is coincident... With the same week in which it has been shown to everybody's satisfaction that if the Viking two mission, which went to Mars back in nineteen seventy-six, if it had scraped into the Martian soil just another five centimeters, instead of going fifteen centimeters, if it had gone twenty, like the width of your hand, it would have hit water ice. Back in the disco era, we would have seen water ice on the planet Mars, and that would have changed everything. So here's the point, my friends. Just think if there'd been humans on Mars. Humans with geology hammers, tapping around, digging, kicking the soil, tipping over rocks. They would have found the ice. Who knows what else is up there on Mars that human geologists, human explorers could find that we just can't quite do with our robots. Our robots are great, but they're not quite at that level, that level where you question things and you take the next step or the next kick or the next scrape or the next dig or the next tap. That's what we need humans for. Mars is really the next destination for humans. I mean, I'm kooky for low-Earth orbit. I'm very happy that somebody found a film of water on the moon, but it's not like we're going to go set up camp there. No, if you want to discover something new and cool, it's Mars. Mark my words, my friend, or Mars my words. (laughs) i got to fly, Bill Nye, the planetary guy.
0: The announcement was made on September 24th in science. Water has finally been confirmed on the moon. But that water was found where no one ever suspected it. The initial evidence came from the Moon Mineralogy Mapper, or M-cubed, a NASA instrument carried by India's first lunar orbiter, Chandrayaan-1. It was confirmed by the Deep Impact spacecraft. It was Deep Impact that put on such a show back in July of 2005 when its impactor smacked into Comet Temple 1. The spacecraft is now carrying out the two-pronged epoxy mission, which includes another comet flyby. It was never intended to help find lunar water, but Deep Impact's instruments were ideal tools to back up M-Cubes find. Jessica Sunshine is on both teams. The University of Maryland Senior Research Scientist is the Deputy Principal Investigator for Epoxy and a Co-Investigator for M-Cubed. She is also the lead author of the paper that revealed the findings. Jessica recently spoke to me via Skype from a meeting underway in Puerto Rico.
2: Yeah, it's uh, certainly one one no one would have predicted. It's been a great pleasure for me to be the person who was on both teams and watch it unfold and realize that we actually had something real. It just makes it much easier for everyone to believe that we actually have something. It's There's no real doubt when you have it in multiple instruments.
0: I want to come back to a conversation about this unique partnership, which I don't think has gotten enough attention. But first of all, you've had some very exciting things to say about the significance of this Of this, fine. How much water are we talking about? It's not as if it's laying around in ice fields or lakes, is it?
2: No, no, um, it's not a lot of water. People have to sort of think in a different mindset. What we're dealing with is is not even liquid, it's not solid, it's not vapor. It's water molecules, uh, maybe several molecules thick layer, like a thin film over the surface of the moon. And we're talking about something that exists as far as we know, in the upper, at most, millimeter of the lunar surface. And what's very interesting and exciting about this is that uh, we as a community have been focused on the concept that we would find water uh, in permanently shadowed regions where it's very cold. Literally, there was no sunlight, which may still exist. But here we are having found water in the absolute opposite direction. That is, we only see it in sunlight. I mean, for us to (laughs) see it with our spectrometer, it must be there uh, in the sun, and it's not something I think anybody ever expected to happen. There's two things that are probably good to keep in mind. We're still talking about something that's more arid than any desert we have here. If you took, I don't know, say a two-liter bottle of soda, filled that container with uh, lunar soil, or desert soil for that matter, you probably could have a couple of eyedroppers full of water molecules.
0: And we're not just talking about water. You have these uh, hydroxyls
2: uh, also mixed in? Right. That's uh, OH. So it's obviously missing one of the Hs. The feature that we're seeing spectrally is a combination of OH and H2O. While we know they're both there, uh, we don't at this point know too much about the relative abundance. And that's something that's uh, on the future work-to-be-done list.
0: Does this have anything to say about the possibility of ice at the poles, which uh, hopefully we will be getting more evidence of before long from the uh, the L cross impact?
2: Well, um, at first glance, uh, no, because again, we're talking about a surface a, a superficial feature that happens everywhere on the surface of the moon during some point of the lunar day, and L cross is going to look for things that are buried at, uh, you know, meters, depths, maybe tens of meters. So even if there were superficial effect where they're hit, it's going to be a minuscule part of the ejector that gets put up. On the other hand, if there is really accumulated uh, volatiles in these permanently shadowed regions, none of us at the moment can think of a direct path to get from this surface water to the potentially polar water But, you know, over eons, there's certainly a possibility that there's some mechanism we haven't figured out yet.
0: Is there some kind of a cycle? I mean, I hesitate to call it a hydrological cycle comparable to what we have on Earth. But but does the the amount, the volume or mass of this water and hydroxyl vary?
2: Yeah, it does. And uh, that's one of the most uh, intriguing parts of the deep impact data because uh, by pure chance, actually, we got two sets of data that were taken a week apart, which for the moon means a quarter of a day, and 90 degrees of rotation. And so we were able to watch the same piece of the moon that say started in the morning on the first data set uh, and it was relatively cold uh, rotate to a local noon, and now it's r- relatively hot. And so we could really compare a number of places at different states. And what we found was that there is in fact a cycle and it's a cycle that happens during the day where you start, let's say, at the morning with a relatively high amount of water and OH, and as you move towards noon and the surface gets hotter, you start losing it. In some places, you lose it completely. In other places, you retain some of that signature. But in all cases, by the time the surface rotates back towards evening, that is, as it's cooled down again, by the time it gets to evening, it has the same amount of water as it started with in the morning. So you have this cycle of loss and recovery that's taking place during the day. Now that's in very sharp contrast to, let's say, something like dew here on Earth or condensation anywhere where you accumulate water overnight and during the daytime you drive it off and you don't get it back again until you're back at night. That's sort of your typical evaporation condensation process that, that we see on Earth and we see it certainly all over the solar system. This is very different. We have to come up with some way of, it's easy to lose the water, but how do you get it back in the daytime? You Hmm. need some sort of source. Uh, And that's where the solar wind comes in. The solar wind obviously comes from the sun. It's there during the day. That is the time that the moon is exposed to the solar wind. And what the solar wind has that's of great interest is lots of hydrogen ions.
0: So where is the oxygen coming from?
2: Well, I think our best guess, and I will admit at this point, this is where guess is coming into play. This is just a theory that needs to be tested and thought about more in more depth, and particularly by people who are space physicists as opposed to, say, those of us who were working on the spectroscopy. But there is oxygen uh, in lunar minerals. So there is a source for oxygen sitting in the lunar soils. We have hydrogen ions in the solar wind exactly how they get together and stay together what that mechanism and how they're held is, is really not known right now. But one would expect, for example, that the water would be more weakly bound uh, than the OH, just because the OH is ionic and has a charge. Hmm. Another intriguing thing about our, our, our deep impact uh, data as a function of, te- of time of day is that when you see the spectral feature at three microns, which which is where we see the OH and the water uh, start to disappear, it does not do so evenly. Hmm. Uh, And in fact, you're losing uh, the part of the spectral signature that's most associated with water is going away much more quickly than the OH signature, which at least is a consistent theory of what might be going on.
0: We'll hear more from Jessica Sunshine about the discovery of water on the moon when Planetary Radio continues.
1: Hey, hey, Bill Nye the Science Guy here. I hope you're enjoying Planetary Radio. We put a lot of work into this show and all our other great Planetary Society projects. I've been a member since the disco era. Now I'm the Society's Vice President. And you may well ask, why do we go to all this trouble? Simple, we believe in the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration. You probably do too, or you wouldn't be listening. Of course, you can do more than just listen. You can become part of the action, helping us fly solar sails, discover new planets, and search for extraterrestrial intelligence and life elsewhere in the universe. Here's how to find
3: out more. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, Planetary.org slash radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's Planetary.org slash radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Jessica Sunshine is part of both the Epoxy and Chandrayaan-1 missions, which have found an incredibly thin layer of water on the moon. The University of Maryland senior research scientist spoke with me late last week. This really is a, another triumph for remote sensing, isn't it?
2: It is. It is. There's the major advantage of having uh, different wavelengths that we can't see in it as human beings in the infrared combined with a very important perspective of being able to be farther away, a synoptic perspective that you just don't get when you're standing on any planet. Uh, and in this particular case, we had these wonderful sets of data where we had different spectrometers with different spatial resolution. Uh, M cubed was in 100-kilometer orbit, so we had spatial resolutions of 140 meters per pixel. Deep Impact was 8 million kilometers away, from the moon <laughs> with a much <laughs> bigger telescope, yeah, but we still had, um, depending on which data set you're looking at, between ten and eighty kilometers per pixel. So we we could see things, but it was a completely different scale than what M Cube was looking at. Let's talk
0: about these spacecraft, and and you're calling it uh, Deep Impact, and uh, is that still what we should be calling this? Spacecraft, which uh, gave us lots of excitement uh, when it had its encounter with a comet a few years ago, but but is now the epoxy mission,
2: right? And you, you actually got the words right. First of all, it really doesn't matter as long as you're <laughs> know what you're which what we're talking about. But um, the spacecraft is still Deep Impact. It's a little confusing, but uh, the spacecraft itself is you know the flyby spacecraft that uh, watched the same instruments that watched the impact event from what was then the impactor spacecraft at Temple One. This is the exact same uh, set of instruments that we, we've had, that we're, we've looked at the Moon, and which we will look at uh, Comet Hartley-2 in about a year from now.
0: Did anybody have any idea that uh, as you approached the Moon, never coming all that close, as you've just said, that uh, Deep Impact would be able to uncover this
2: evidence? Well, no, I don't think, you know, even on the M-Cube team, we thought we would be <laughs> uncovering this evidence, <laughs> and we were a heck of a lot closer. Um, what we were—the reason the Deep Impact team was taking data of the Moon was for calibration purposes. It's always wonderful to be able to look at objects that other people have looked at uh, that you think, "Haha, that you understood." <laughs> In the case of the Moon, we thought it was spectrally pretty, pretty boring. It turns out that that's is is okay, except for this three micron region is a little more exciting than we thought. Mm-hmm. We, we were going to take this data. We had planned to take this data, but both of the two dates. Um, way before uh, M-cubed had a hint of what might have been going on. You know, within the M-cubed team, that particular spectrometer stops exactly at 3 microns, which is just the beginning of the band. And it's also the end of the instrument. And One is always nervous about the ends of your instrument because that's where you tend to have calibration problems. Hmm. And water is a really hard thing to feel good about because... All these instruments at one point in time were on Earth, and there's plenty of water here. If you don't do everything just right in your calibrations and if everything doesn't bake off in space, you can imagine all sorts of ways that something might sneak in the system that you didn't know you were worried about, that there was somehow something wrong with the way we were looking. fair to say that there was great skepticism amongst the M-Cube team. We were arguing back and forth for months, and I finally said, we're actually going to get this data with Deep Impact if there 's water there there 's no way deep impact will not see it hmm. it 's just impossible because we know that instrument works at those wavelength regions it 's you know we, we saw water ice and water vapor at comets it was designed to do it. It actually covers the entire band and then some. It would have to have been bloody obvious if m cube was right, and it turns out it was bloody obvious that there was water on the moon, and no none of us predicted any of it.
0: Well, you may have brought some unique advantages to this because you are on both missions. That had to bring some major advantages.
2: It did, actually. Uh, There's no question about it. First of all, the the specific awareness that these two opportunities were happening at the same time, in this case, that we had some resolution for the M-Cube concerns with Deep Big Pact, and we knew it was coming. I mean, that, I think, helped everybody. And uh, I had a different perspective on what was going on because I actually had the two instruments and I was, I was able to look at both of them at the same time.
0: Where do we go from here? Unfortunately, we've lost uh, M-cubed along with the rest of Chandrayaan-1, uh, only fortunately after it uh, did this uh, incredibly good work. Where does your work go as, uh, as
2: far as the Moon is concerned? Well, you know, Chandrayaan uh, provided us 10 months of data, <laughs> of the moon was mapped, not at the full spectral and spatial resolution we would have liked, ultimately, but it's a hell of a data set, and there's just all sorts of very interesting stuff, not so much related to the water anymore, but to the basic mineralogy of the moon that we thought we understood, that there's a number of surprises that's going to come out from that data.
0: Excellent. So more to come.
2: Um, Absolutely. You haven't heard the last of M-Cube. <laughs> what are you doing
0: down there in Puerto Rico?
2: Actually, I'm at an M-Cube team meeting, which we sort of timed because uh, next week is the, the American Astronomical Society Division for Planetary Science DPS meeting, uh, which is the first time we will actually present the water results to a professional audience and our, hmm. our peers directly, which I hope goes well. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it will. Both of those meetings are here in Puerto Rico.
0: Please pass along our congratulations to the rest of the M-Cube team and uh, have a great time at DPS. Thank you so much for joining us again, and uh, nice work. Thank you very much. Jessica Sunshine is a senior research scientist at the University of Maryland in the astronomy department, not surprisingly, but she is also the deputy principal investigator for Epoxy, the uh, latest incarnation uh, of that uh, spacecraft, Deep Impact, that we will continue to follow on this program. She is also, though, a co-investigator for M-Cubed, or was the moon mineralogy mapper on uh, Chandrayaan 1, the nation of India's first lunar mission. We'll be right back with Bruce Betts for this week's edition of What's Up after we hear from Emily.
3: Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Is there a possibility of New Horizons going into safe mode just before closest approach like Messenger did? A lot of people got concerned about New Horizons after Messenger's third Mercury flyby. Just a few minutes before MESSENGER's closest approach to Mercury on September 29, its computer detected something it didn't like about its power supply and shut down all of the spacecraft's science instruments, then began calling Earth for help. So MESSENGER never performed most of the science observations that had been planned for the encounter. Although the safe mode was disappointing, it's not really that big a deal. The number one goal of MESSENGER's three Mercury flybys was to use Mercury's gravity to slow the spacecraft so that little Mercury will be able to capture MESSENGER into orbit in 2011. Any science data that MESSENGER managed to get during the three flybys was just taking advantage of an opportunity. It wasn't critical to mission success, so the mission team had conservative limits on the spacecraft's autonomous health checks. New Horizons' encounter with Pluto is a totally different story. It just has one flyby. So New Horizons gets only one shot at gathering high-resolution data, and then it travels on into the Kuiper Belt never to see Pluto again. So New Horizons will be instructed not to go into safe mode no matter what for a nine-day period around closest approach, because it'd take nearly nine hours for a call for help and radio response to make the round trip from Pluto to Earth and back. If a problem happens, the spacecraft will just have to do its best to correct for it all by itself. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
0: Time once again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here's Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. It's a big one today, a big, big contest uh, coming up, because uh, we're going to learn how our listeners think we should destroy the world.
4: Exactly. They're
0: disturbingly good at this.
4: We'll start with uh, trying to uh, destroy another world later this week, or, or at least put a little tiny hole in it and spew some things up. The LCROSS, NASA's Cross mission, on October 9th, Friday, at 4:30 in the morning pacific time will slam into a crater on the moon and try to uh, excavate they hope water ice that may or may not be there and it'll first have this uh, large upper stage slam in and then the uh, trailing spacecraft will observe it also i mentioned it in the night sky portion because technically it will be observable from earth at least if you're on the night side at that time uh, lots of uh, telescopes in the the Pacific coast of North and South America, and Hawaii will be looking. If you have a 10-inch or bigger telescope, there's a chance you can see the impact. And uh, in any case, you can check it out on the Internet, look for the results, and I'm sure it's something we'll be covering. Uh, We'll also come back to it once again for another trivia contest a little bit later on. In terms of the night sky, still Jupiter looking stunning high in the south after sunset, bright star-like object, brightest star-like object in the evening. In the morning, that would be Venus, the brightest star-like object, low in the east. And below Venus this week is uh, Saturn and Mercury. And in fact, on Thursday the 8th, they are getting awfully close together within a third of a degree. Mercury is considerably brighter than Saturn. Venus is much brighter than both and a little bit higher up. All of this Very low on the horizon, though, over in the east, so you'll need a clear view. On to random space fight. Wow, I didn't expect it to go there. Hey, did you know that there was just a big uh, ticker tape parade for, uh, for an astronaut in Florida?
0: No, really. It's at least my favorite space ranger. Oh, you know, I did hear about this.
4: Yes, that's right. There was a ticker tape parade for none other than Buzz Buzz Lightyear,
1: Lightyear. not
4: surprisingly, (laughs) at Disney World. But the random space fact part of it, besides the fictional part, is a 12-inch Buzz Lightyear flew on the space station for 15 months, just returned to Earth on September 11th. Uh, Welcome back uh, with a a big celebration. Turns out he uh, is the 12-inch Space Ranger action figure that has spent the most time in space.
0: (laughs) To infinity and beyond.
4: Thanks. Thank you. Very <laughs> nicely done. On to the trivia contest. And we asked you last time around, tied to uh, to the episode of the universe on History Channel I was on, they had 10 ways to destroy the Earth. We asked you for humorous ways that you would destroy the Earth. And uh, we did great, Matt. I don't even have to ask. I've seen them; they're fabulous. They're wonderful. You want to share
0: some? I'd sure love to. These are terrific. And as always, folks, you were great. We we have far too many for us to mention all of them. Thank you to all of you for uh, entering. But we'll give you uh, a four or five here, okay? I'm going to start with uh, Torsten Zimmers. Torsten said, "Kick off evolution. Wait a few billion years for humans to appear. Tell them to be fruitful and multiply. Relax. Sit back. Get some popcorn." And enjoy the show. (laughs) All right. Do you have them in front of you there? Do you want to read
4: one? I do indeed. I enjoyed from uh, Susan No in Texas.
0: Actually noe but that's okay.
4: Hey, sorry. I'm not as practiced as you are at this. (laughs) I see that now. My favorite way to destroy the Earth, disguise it as a Death Star... And just wait for Luke Skywalker to show up.
0: All right, this was a really good one. And even if it had been the winner, I probably would have had to disqualify him for reasons I'll go into later. I won't read the whole thing, but it came from James. And James said All we have to do is get everyone on the planet to move to New Jersey. And that would cause the Earth's rotational stability to decay. In other words, it would start to wobble in its orbit and uh, screw up our orbit, and everything would just be awful, and eventually we'd all turn blue and fall down dead when we lose the atmosphere. The problem, of course, is being uh, how do you get everybody to go to New Jersey? It's hard enough to get anybody to go. Oh, James Kaplan. Yes, he happens to be, he wrote in here, proud to admit to being Matt's brother. So, uh, James, nice job.
4: Nicely done.
0: I think you should tell
4: us about the dessert. You you enjoyed it so very much.
0: Oh, I did, actually. This was another of my favorites. Uh, this came to us from Maurice Luca. My favorite way to destroy the Earth, a Greek scientist who really likes dessert devises a way to make all the baklava he wants. He does it by creating tiny nanobots, you know, nanites. They make the baklava, but they escape the laboratory and run amok. <laughs> we would need to move to the moon, but at least we would know a good snack is only a couple days away. Just bring lots of strong coffee. Thank you, Maurice. Okay, you got the winner for us.
4: Our winner, Brian Cassio from Marion, Illinois. Fill up all the ocean in the world with Coke. And then... Pour one trillion mints in the ocean.
0: (laughs) And the Earth, of course, would explode and destroy. Now, that Brian did say mints, but we don't mind saying Mentos, because everybody knows that that's how you get this kind of thing done. Brian, congratulations. You're our winner. And I think that means that he gets the other Blu-ray copy of Season 1 of uh, the universe from the History Channel. Cool. Hey, we got another trivia contest. Cool. Lay it on us.
4: Hey, what are we giving away?
0: Oh, we'll be going back to a Planetary Radio t-shirt and a rewards card from Oceanside Photo and Telescope.
4: Hey, those are awesome. Okay, so the LCROSS, uh, we've got two things. we got the upper stage, expended upper stage, slamming into the moon, and then the other spacecraft flying along behind it. In, once the first one slams into the moon, the second, the spacecraft flies through, analyzes what's there, and then, boom, slams into the moon. What is the time difference between the two impacts? <laughs> at least approximately. Uh, go to planetary.org slash radio, find out how to enter.
0: You've got until Monday at 2 p.m. Monday, October 12, at 2 p.m. Pacific time to get us that answer. we got to get out of here.
4: All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about big swords. Thank you, and good
0: night. He's Bruce Bats, looking sharp. The director of projects for the Planetary Society joins us every week here for What's Up. Join the party as we cover the impact of Cross on the moon. That's next week on Planetary Radio, which is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Keep looking up.